Welcome to this episode of Tez Podagogy. I'm Tez Commissioning Editor John Severs, and rather than being joined by an academic today, I have two members of the Glorious Tez Features team, Dan Worth and Gronya Hallahan. In the next few weeks, we are trying some new approaches to the Podagogy podcast, and this is our first attempt. For this episode, as we finish week two of lockdown and schools being closed to the majority of pupils, the three of us are going to discuss remote learning. But first, we are recording this remotely as likely, like most of the country, we are working from home. So forgive any sound issues or internet dropouts or random shouts and screams from our children who are uh, being homeschooled downstairs. Let's get started. Dan, have you ever learned something purely online? Uh, yeah, I mean, I regularly look up sort of piano tutorials of different pieces and things like that online. And I find there's real sort of ranging quality, some some excellent channels out there that are really good and they slow it down and talk you through it. And others where it's some something from, you know, 10 years ago, with some grainy video and, and so forth. But in the main, it works pretty well. And if you're willing to do it, I think it can work pretty well. What's the worst video you've watched for piano? Um, I, I can't say a, a specific one, but there's so many from sort of pre-2010 when webcam quality was like, you know, 0.3 megapixels and you can't even see the key they're pressing and there's audio quality is terrible and yeah you know when you found something pre sort of smartphone era because the quality is just isn't good enough and then you find something more recent and it's so crystal clear and, and high quality so you're saying new is better for piano tutorials yes in a very niche area of piano tutorials Gronia, what have you learned purely online i've actually learned my daughter and i've been learning how to draw we've been doing cartoon lessons together how lovely and i was never particularly good at drawing at school and i've learned how to draw like cartoon figures things using these kids things so they, she draws and i draw and we do it together how old is she I do it with the seven-year-old and the five-year-old and are they better than you oh they're going to get to the point they're going to, it's going to tip over i like to think i'm a little bit better at the moment i learned to do my decking i built a massive decking area in my garden and it took me six months and i watched every youtube video on building a decking and it was the most stressful experience of my life but yeah it's pretty good dancing my decking is a pretty good i've seen it yeah it's not bad was it rewarding learning yourself teaching yourself it was but i found that most of the guys on the videos were experts and so they made everything look 10 times easier than than it actually was in practice i don't know if you two found the same that the the steps that were seamless to them were incredibly difficult to do in reality it's quite high stakes as well like if that goes wrong and you stand on it and it all it's an expensive and risky strategy well yeah you've got a too big a nose on your character on your what you've drawn or dan hits the bum note whereas i have an a and e visit for my four young children so yeah the stakes were were quite high we've struggled we've got through this online online learning journey but the stakes really you know if my decking went wrong it's just my pride that's hurt but obviously in the current situation we've got a situation a context where kids education sort of ends on remote learning and most schools are trying some approach be that printed or online but let's have a look specifically at the online approaches dan you've written a feature in the third of april edition of tez where you had a good look to see if there's any help out there for schools looking to do remote le- le- uh, learning online and what sort of research there is. Can, do you want to give us an overview of what you found? Yeah, it, it was interesting because, I mean, in, in some ways, the, the research wasn't there. That was what was quite interesting to begin with. That, that I mean, there may be papers obviously I didn't find in, in my, my research, but in the main, it's pretty, it seems clear there hasn't been any sort of real, you know, in-depth and really sort of quantitative studies that point to how you can teach well remotely and particularly in this kind of scenario where you're not going to be seeing the children again you know in person in the classroom quite soon afterwards you know and again 
So I suppose it's not surprising in some ways there isn't direct research on how do you teach remote learning from ages three to you know 18 for a long period of time without face-to-face interaction because when would this ever have happened before to do that research? So I think that that to me sort of underlined from the starting point that this really is quite uh, an unparalleled situation and not one that you can easily just say oh we'll do this and it will all work well. That said there were some things that came out that sort of offer some sort of you know that it can be done and, and we shouldn't sort of immediately assume it's not going to go well. I guess the problem with research in this area is that to do it properly you'd have to take a group of children out of their normal learning environment and try and teach them for in, in a remote way for three months which I don't know the ethics of that are quite are quite dubious and uh, Gronia used to be a teacher how would you feel if half your class were suddenly made to teach be taught remotely with no contact time in, in the school it obviously wouldn't work you wouldn't be able to do that but not just that that still wouldn't replicate the situation we find ourselves in at the moment because it's not just the fact that they're at home they're at home with parents who are possibly unwell and they're dealing with lots of other stuff that's going on too like it still wouldn't be for like comparison would it no, I think that's, that's the problem yeah and that's true because there is some some examples of schooling done remotely in places like australia where they do it by the radio for people who live on farms in the middle of nowhere but of course again to your point that that's different because they know that's the scenario when they start with and the teachers are sort of practiced in that and the parents are presumably you know going to be aware that's how the children have to be taught whereas now everyone's rushing to this and and it's it's not a simple case of just like oh let's all just jump to that mode of delivery instead because a lot of people wouldn't have done this before and jared cooney horvath who's one of our economists makes a, a really good point is that children and young people in particular are very used to using it for pleasure and that actually, you know, the, the models of learning in their brain don't really include sitting on a computer and learning in that in that way. And to get them out of the habit of seeing uh, online technology, uh, sorry, online learning as something, you know, sorry, computers for learning rather than computers for play or computers for socialising. And I'm using computers in the broad term there to just, you know, phones, laptops, tablet computers is, is very difficult. I mean, I don't know any teenagers. I'm at that age where teenagers are a, <laughs> are a sort of, unknown quantity to me i mean Gronia used to work with them all the time are, are they this are they this sort of tech obsessed generation i mean is it going to be this really tough uh, transition for them to see a computer as a, as a tool for learning i think most teenagers have been using computers to learn on for a long time and they'll they'll use the computer lessons in school like they, that's not that's not such a problem i can't imagine that there, there's that resistance to it but just like you can't talk about all people, all adults behaving one way, not all teenagers behave the same way. And some of them really don't like using technology or have had really bad experiences from using platforms like video chats where they've been bullied by their friends online. Like it's not, it's not as simple as let's use computers to learn on. They're going to be bringing their own feelings about using computers to that, aren't they? Yeah. And I guess one of the things that you found in your feature down was that there's been a sort of assumption that most children will have some sort of device to learn on or a de- even if there is a device in the home that that will be available but that, that assumption's not really correct is it yeah that's that's right actually. And, and obviously we do take for granted this idea that everyone's connected everyone has you know a computer a good internet connection and so forth but actually you know that we know that's not the case and you know data from ofcom shows that there's still you know something like seven percent of households in the uk have no internet access and many will have poor connections and some might only have one device between several children children or indeed they might not even have like the sort of right room set up to sit quietly and learn and look at a computer and use it properly and they've got you know two siblings trying to get it off them and parents at home now you know trying to work or dealing with not having employment it's, it's really not an ideal scenario 
Um, and yeah, I think it's, I think that's hard for teachers and, and the ones I've spoken to, I think it's clear they know that and they, they're aware that it isn't this sort of perfect setup and it's not going to be the case that everything you could just do online will work for everyone or, or, you know, just be immediately sort of accessible. Um, but again, I think that's one of the things where ultimately we can, you reach a point where you have to sort of think, but there's not a lot we can do about that right now. You know, it's just, if everyone had a good internet connection and a good, and everyone had their own personal device and it was all perfectly set up, that would be great. And that would make this all better, but how that isn't the way where, where we are right now. It's a weird shift, isn't it? I mean, we had this real push to research-informed learning that sort of made EdTech this ghoul of the education world, you know, this sort of character or these Silicon Valley vultures preying on the innocent children with their apps that don't, don't create learning. And then suddenly we're in a situation where those apps are a godsend. I mean, some of the apps and some of the programs did transmission and who, you know, became quite well regarded in, in, in schools like Hegarty Maths, Times Tables, Rockstars, a lot of the Google uh, tools. But suddenly all the ed tech cynics, if you like, and, and those who just didn't understand tech or didn't want to understand it are having to embrace it. How much, you know, in your average staff room, Gornia, yeah, I mean, are we, is this a big transition for teachers to accept that technology has a role? It's going to be massive and it's going to be really difficult because you'll have teachers who just will be so resistant to it and won't want to use it and won't be able to put their resources onto it because it would take so much time to transfer everything they've got on one system to upload it into a different system so that the students can access it too. It's going to take loads of time, it's going to take a real shift in mindset as well. Lots of teachers don't want to do live lessons, lots of teachers don't want to put all of their documents up for students to use because it would take changing every single individual resource they've got to make it usable for students to use. Which brings us nicely, I guess, to, to a feature you wrote a couple of months ago, which is um, about the rise of the EduTuber and how most teachers' experience of teaching via online platforms is, is a flipped learning model and yeah. how the videos on YouTube, many of them, are, there's an assumption that that child is getting contact time at some point. Do you want to talk to us first about what an EduTuber is? Um, what you found in terms of uh, YouTube's push into the education area and, and then a bit about the problems maybe of this applying that flipped learning model to the, to the current situation. So an EduTuber is a person with an education background who's making videos for students to be able to use, usually centred around like a single text or for example with the science, there's the free science lessons, there's a science teacher who goes through the entire AQA GCSE spec and produces a video to teach every single concept in that in that spec. They're really popular amongst kids what I found in the feature that they're also really popular with some schools where they actually play parts of the video in replacement of a teacher when they haven't got a teacher able to teach that class. But there's there's drawbacks to it too. It's not ideal when you think about how it is absolutely impossible for YouTube to check that all of the content that's uploaded onto YouTube is of good quality and is, hasn't got any mistakes in it. And they have this system which has the, the algorithm that's meant to allow the good quality videos to rise to the top and that, you know, if, it, if there's a video that's got mistakes in it, that that will be raised by the comments and it will get downgraded and therefore people won't see it. But that's, that's not really 
a perfect system and some of the teachers that I spoke to when I was when I was writing this feature were really frustrated by having to reteach content to students who'd gone onto YouTube, watched a video about something and came into the classroom with these mistakes, you know, really deeply like ingrained into their brain and had to reteach them to make sure that they didn't they didn't bring that into the exam. Like the their teaching is being undermined by these videos that they're watching. So it's a it's a complicated one. I guess like in our experience like with what we spoke about earlier I'm, I'm sure all three of us went through a number of videos that were top rated yeah. or had loads of audience figures that were actually useless in building yeah. a deck or playing a piano or drawing a cartoon character and I think that's that's not a, you know, it's not really a problem for YouTube they're not making any grand claims here but it may be a warning sign for teachers that if you think you know, you know Joe Wicks is teaching PE if you like on, on via YouTube live I think isn't he at the moment so yeah. you know if we if we rely on these YouTube videos without properly vetting them there's, there's a danger there is there a danger too in in the sense that these videos are used in the context of those child children will go into a classroom they'll do practice you know teaching is more than just a lecture so what happens with the practice? How is that practice managed? And with the flipped learning model, it's often the teacher goes over there, you know, the video lecture, if you like, and tries to consolidate that learning, find the misconception. That's, I'm guessing, a lot harder to do online. It's so much harder. And it's things like age dependent, isn't it? So for youngest, younger children, say you've got a child in foundation and the school is sending home links to YouTube videos on pronouncing the different, the different uh, digraphs and trigraphs. How does the teacher check? that the child has correctly understood that when they're not going to see that child for another whole term. Mm. And you, it's difficult, isn't it? It's, it's not a perfect system. You're not going to ever have the teacher checking the work of the child. You're not going to know whether or not they've understood it properly or, or grasped, grasped the concepts. And I, and, and I promise this is the last negative point I'm going to dwell on. But um, Dan used to work in the, in the tech sector and there's been a lot of stuff that's arisen in the past sort of two weeks of this initial stage about security and, you know, how secure these apps, and, you know, screen time, how, you know, how, how long should these kids be spending looking at screens? There isn't a perfect system, is there, Dan, in the sense of no, nothing is 100% secure. No, and I think, I think what is becoming clear, though, from... The teachers you've been speaking to, both for this article that I've written and others, is that the learning curve has been quite steep, but also I think quite honest. And I think people have rapidly realised that it's not a case of doing, oh, I'll do a video lesson and that will just work. Both from the point of, from a, you know, from a from a learning point of view, but also yeah, from a security, from a safeguarding point of view. You know, how do you do that? How do you broadcast to, to you know into multiple families' homes and you know, do the children? Can you trust them to have their webcam on and? You know, should you obviously not I don't know there's so many issues there that you you can't just sort of brush aside you have they have to be given consideration and again that point of security you know we're seeing that the zoom platform is hugely popular but there are questions you know questions being asked about that and they're ensuring everyone it's fine and you know that's that's sort of fairly part of the course actually in terms of the security of any platform and how it's used and questions being asked that's not out of the ordinary it's just that the the immediacy of need for it and the amount of people using these things and like you say teachers turning to platforms they never used before and just thinking right i'll put all my content on that is a is potentially a what you know a, a difficult area to get into but i think as long as we are they you know everyone is sort of aware of that and being careful and not doing anything too foolhardy and too just like rushing to like right i've got to do something i'll just do that and you know we don't need to do that. i think it's clear that this is such an unusual situation i think time spent getting it right or just being sensible is perfectly understandable because 
is yes, it's better to be a little bit more sensible. But I think I think most people are sort of aware of that now. Yeah, I mean, we've done a, quite a few articles, haven't we, about the basic safeguarding checks. I mean, you shouldn't have your monitor on as you know, you shouldn't have your camera on as the teacher or, or the students. All SLT should have access to your video platform account, whether you're live or, or remote. But and it, I mean, I might spoke to one teacher who said they're doing um, they're looking to do more audio, like almost like a podcast, you might say, podcast lesson rather than a video lesson, which immediately removes that issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and you think and it means that you can still record it and have a sort of proof of what you said and what you asked them to do like a video but you just immediately remove that issue of being on camera and you know your, your background or someone walking in, in by accident you know you, who knows what's going to happen you know we're all, we're all dealing with this so I think I thought that immediately was like yeah that just seems like you're getting a lot of the same benefit of video focusing over powerpoints yeah thing. things like that um, even well i mean i think i think it's going to depend how a teacher would want to do it but i think you can see how yeah. that removes a lot of those safeguarding issues okay maybe it's not as good in terms of demonstrating something but again you could mm-hmm. still do that as well and have a shortened video but just for your main sort of here's what i'm asking you to do here's what we're going to learn about today as a pre-recorded audio maybe that you know is a, is a good workaround for some of those video issues and i guess in primary that what we're hearing is that in primary schools uh, is quite a handoff approach you know the people are accepting that uh, primary schools are upset, accepting that the, the amount of learning their children can do at home in a direct way from what school set is quite difficult but at secondary have we got a sense of uh, what learning is looking like if if schools have erupted for an online platform I think it really varies from school to school so some schools I've spoken to have done an online learning platform where one teacher takes charge of the subject and they put their resources out and if they're doing videos they'll um they'll perhaps pre-record the video and then and then save it onto the, the google classroom area so kids can watch it rather than trying to do live ones um but some schools just aren't doing much online stuff at all i think what i've um what i've heard as well is that the um you know that that online learning thing is that a lot of people started at 100 miles an hour and thought right we'll just do everything online and we'll just all we have to do is readapt and it'll carry on just before it and then again very quickly there was a sort of realization that that's not going to work for, for so many reasons and actually it's more about what you can achieve during this time should be taken as, as good you know there aren't any exams which is very sad for, for those children even if they may not realize it right now one day they'll probably realize that was a that was a sort of a shame for them so we haven't got that pressure of exams to get them through it's more about continuing learning where we can I think and you know I think what was nice from the features and some of the research I looked at that was out there and admittedly it wasn't of a great scale but it looked at some things about the idea of self-directed learning and you know setting students some work and then sort of encouraging them to go off and find out more and that they will do that and they will remember it as well and so even if a teacher may wonder if what they're teaching remotely and, you know, is it really going in? Is the pupil really learning? Well, the little bit of research that are out there around this seems to suggest that, yes, they do learn and remember and can recall it in the future. And I think it will be hard to not be able to sort of see them for a long time and check what learning is happening. But I think if lessons are being structured as best as possible and I tell you tasks are being set and there's a form of assessment, it does suggest that that will still be having an impact on going in and, and you know, helping with their ongoing learning. I mean, and I guess everything people are making. Sorry, everything that people are making now is going to be so useful in the future for when you've got students that can't attend school, or the next time we have any times when schools have to close for snow days. We're going to be so much more set up to deal with school closures and students being absent from school for long periods after what we've been through now. I guess the point about trust is an interesting one because the accountability system has meant that teachers have not been able to trust their students to just do it in the sense that, um, you know, we do check and check and check and check and check that children have, have learned things. I mean, how much of a psychological shift is that? So actually, as you say, Dan, 
know that those kids might you know they're okay on their own that they will they will go and learn uh, you know it might not be as optimal it might not be as efficient but no, something will be going in in the next few months essentially yeah i think i think that's true but i think what was interesting is one thing i've spoken to a few people is that the worry will be though that the ones that do that and the ones that you can trust to go and learn will probably be those that either are well firstly are more likely to already you know to be the high achievers in school because they like learning they have supportive parents or they have the right environment at home to learn and so if you ask them to do things they will do it because they want to and conversely the children that are less inclined or don't have internet at home or don't have a good device to learn on even if they were preemptive previously good students or not will fall behind and that and that gap will split but i think yes the starting point is actually is there's a sense that they will learn and they will you know remember things and if you if they if they're properly structured to you know to a reasonable level there's a there's a positive there but i think thereafter the same issues will come up of you know gaps between levels of attainment and you know do some students not have the right environment to learn when they're not in school you know how engaged are the parents all those things that previously existed anyway so i don't think we're going to see a massive sort of change in the problems it's just harder to deal with those problems i think is there any advice Gornia, from you that so you know is it ethical to let those kids that are just self-starters go and do it and to focus all our efforts on those we're more worried about is, is that something we can morally do or what else can we do to, to try and keep that, that gap from getting any wider? When you think about it, that is kind of what we do anyway, isn't it? Like when, we, when you think of what an intervention is, you intervene with those that aren't, that whether there's a gap, and you leave those that are able to, to get on and do it. So turning your attention to those that you know might be falling behind, isn't, is it an ethical issue? I, don't know, I think that's pretty much what, what we do in schools anyway, when, when you are a school that uses interventions. So if you put all your efforts into those where you know there's going to be gaps in their knowledge and you're worried about what they're, they're going to do, how do you motivate those students? What you can call them up each day and nag them and say, are you completing your work? Is that going to make them work any harder? Um, I've heard about schools sending home laptops to try and help help the students, but is the school laptop really going to be so much better technology than than what they've got? Do you know what I mean? Like it's you need to find out the reason why they're not doing their work and then trying to address that problem. And internet connection. There's only so much you can do. And uh, did you hear about the plan to put internet into certain households during this period? I have. So what are you going to do then? Like, I think, I think um, actually your internet is 